Welcome, welcome, welcome to another edition of Fixin' the Talk Sports. I am your host, as always, Ryan Brown. And today, for episode 100, I've got my brother Nick and my dad Gary. Guys, how are we doing? Hello. It's a wonderful night to do a podcast. It's a great Happy night. 100 episodes. Congrats on 100. Yes. It took a, lot, a while to get here. Uh, there was quite a quite a lot, uh, layoff between 99 and 100. There were several reasons for that. Uh, all three of us moved. I moved to Tennessee. Each of you moved to different places. Nick finally moved into his own place. Shout out to him for his first place. So good, good stuff there, nice. Nick. Uh, and my dad, you, you you did your own move too. Out of out of out of the. The Rockland going to Hingham, or it's right, Hingham? Three moves in 30 days, and yes, we moved to Hingham, Massachusetts. Yeah, so it's it's been crazy in, in our family, to say the least, but it felt only right for episode 100 to be us three. So we're going to just talk a little bit about all things sports going on right now. It's going to be kind of like a little bit of an open forum where we're just going to talk a little bit about everything. So why don't we start with... Probably the best team in New England right now, which you can make an argument it's between one of two teams, but I think we got to go with the record-setting pace of the Boston Bruins. They entered tonight's first half finale in Toronto with the most points and the best goal differential in the NHL and a nice 11-point lead over those Maple Leafs in the Atlantic Division. They are 6-3-1 in their last 10 entering tonight, but they have lost three in a row. So, given that they are on such a record-setting pace, Nick, I'll start with you because you love you, you some Bruins. What have been the keys for the Bruins to sustaining this record pace through their first 50 games of the season? I think it starts in the locker room. I mean, I think at the beginning of the season, there was definitely a vibe of a... Uh what you would call maybe a last hoorah. You have David Krejci and Patrice Bergeron signing for cheap on one-year deals to pretty much go for the cup. And so I think when you see old veterans, guys who have been leaders in the locker room like that, coming back in on short, cheap deals, everybody knows that like it's cu- it's cup or bust for this team, the way it's been structured. Um, I think a lot of people in... Boston sports media and probably even fans as well probably wouldn't have predicted this type of play from them. But I think the vibe in the locker room was that they expected they could play this way. So I I think that's where it starts, where they say we have a common goal. We're going to play as a team. And I hate to say it, but the coaching change is a big deal too. I think Bruce Cassidy's coaching style, while it was good, I think, for some facets of the game, they went to a, the Stanley Cup Finals in 2018. Uh, I think there was just uh, about it was just time for change. And Jim Montgomery has been a blessing for this team. Uh, I think he's allowed them to play more free, play how they want to play, play more aggressive. One of the biggest changes on the ice that I noticed with this team uh, is the aggressive play of their D-men up in the blue line in their own zone. They're getting deeper into the O zone and keeping pucks alive to keep cycling around and keep offensive chances alive. 
and that's just one of many, but it's one of the first things that I noticed, you know, watching all these games in the first half. So you combine that with the, like, you finally get some secondary scoring. Guys like Jake DeBrusque, hopefully he's back from injury soon. And uh, he's been a monster when he's been playing this year. Won the, pretty much won the Winter Classic for them. Um, and then also even a guy like Trent Frederick, he's got 10 goals this year. I don't think anybody views him as anything more than a punching bag uh, for this team, but you know, apparently this guy can actually play some good hockey. So they've really built a good team in trading for Hampus Lindholm last year. They put together a really, really good roster and uh, yeah, I'm excited to see how far they can go. I'm glad you brought up the secondary scoring. They really have gotten a lot more production outside of that top line, the perfection line, so to speak. Last year, they only had four forwards and one defenseman at this point in the season who had at least 25 points or more. This year, double that. Eight forwards and two defensemen with 25 points or more. Just top to bottom, it's been a lot more production and it's really helped to kind of ease the burden off of your star players in Pasternak, Marshawn, and Bergeron. And you couple that with a couple of other things, which we're going to see if Dad will allude to, and it's just been unbelievable. What stood out to you, Dad, about the Bruins so far this year? One thing and one thing only, um, because the majority of the team um, has remained intact, right? But you're looking at um, how well they're playing together, uh, how well they're performing, how well they're getting along. And it's one thing and one thing only. It's the coach. Um, I hate to say it because it, it, you know, it was probably one of the most annoying and frustrating things, right? They had a great coach. Um, and there's proof he's a great coach because where he is now, he's hugely successful. But he lost the locker room. Um, for whatever reason, whether you agree with his style or not, or, you know, you're old school or whatever, he lost the locker room. And as much as, you know, I think most of the region did not want Cassidy to go, um, I think this is clear evidence that um, the change in coaching style, um, especially these days with players and how they behave and act and react to coaching, has made a world of a difference. They have freedom. Um, uh, and I think DeBrusque is the perfect example. He's always been this talented. He's maturing, but he's not having someone yell and scream at him constantly and benching him if he you know, does anything wrong. Um, I, I think that has brought this group together, and I think they realize that the window is closing. So it's all in, and it, it's been amazing to watch because they just toy with people. Um, and, you know, obviously they're, they're hitting their first adversity. It's February, and we're talking about the first adversity for them. Um, a lot of local media have said um, they, this group needs adversity, um, and so some of them are actually happy that they've lost a few games because they need to know how to handle it. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if they finish strong tonight uh, going into the break. But to me, it's, you know, changing the coaching has unlocked um, and meshed the talent in this, this team. And it's, it's just watching how they play and how 
they just get along and how they score and they're just toying with people. Um, and it's just, it's amazing to watch. Yeah. And I think the coaching is even kind of eccentrified in the special teams play. They've always had good special teams, very good as well, but it's even been better this year. They're first in the league in penalty kill percentage and they're sixth in power play percentage. Like that yeah. usually you're you're one or the other or you're just good at both. It's it's a rarity where you're seeing just high end play on both sides of the special teams end of things. And then one other note that we haven't really touched on as much, it's the elite goaltending. The 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 play of Linus Olmark, like he has put himself in a position to be easily the front runner for the Vezina this year, without a shadow of a doubt. A 1.90 goals against average and 936 save percentage both lead the NHL. And even Jeremy Swayman has been no slouch as well. His goals against is is right around 2.35, I believe. And that's that's a very respectable number himself. So they have just had elite goaltending, top-tier special teams play, and the coaching has seemingly unlocked the death of this team. Wherever you want to point it, it's just everything has been clicking on all cylinders for the Boston Bruins so far. And I I really hope that they can continue it on in the second half after the All-Star break this weekend and going into the playoffs. That being said... They do, they, they do need one thing, though. And it's mm-hmm. I think it was evident when they played uh, the Kraken and... I can't remember there was one of the loss, but um, they and this is the St. Louis Blues syndrome. They need um, they need uh, some size and and strength on the defense because when they've got teams that take the St. Louis Blues approach and just beat them up, um, they can't handle that for long. So I I hope they find a big strong defenseman that can, you know, hold the ground and be physical. Um, Because in a seven-game series, I think we've seen it a number of times, they get worn down. And and that's my only concern with them. Nick, do you agree with that assessment? Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. Um, You can name names. We can can name Felger and Maz as the number one uh, group of Boston sports media that wanted to see this team lose, but I mean, I, I understand where they're coming from with that, but I still don't want to see them lose in general. But like, I get, I understand the sentiment. So, but yeah, I, I agree with everything else he said. All right. So the final question for the Bruins is: Do you both think that the Bruins can keep up their current level of success into the second half, into the playoffs? Dad, I'll start with you. I do. Um, I. I I'm. I don't want to say I'm stunned, but I'm just. I'm still a little surprised at how strong they are this deep. I think they, the All Star break will be a nice break. I hope you know they all get some rest. But um, these for I, I, Brad Marchand made a comment the other day. Um, someone made the reference to like the NBA and said, you know, should you guys have load management where you know. 
you get some rest over the latter part of the season so that you go strong in, into the playoffs. And he was furious. Um, he said, we're not the NBA. Um, we want to play every day. We don't need load management. And he was, he, I mean, he, he's a fiery guy, but he was just laser focused saying, NFW, we are playing every game to win. We don't care where it is. We don't care when it is. Now, I would say the coaching has to manage that a little bit. I think, you know, your Bergerons, you got to give some time later in the season. But I really think they, they, they're, if they can get a big guy in the back end, um, print the banner. Ooh. Nick? Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. I think one of the guys that need to target that they've been talking about a lot, uh, I hope I pronounce his name right, is Jacob Chitron. Uh, I believe he's an Arizona Coyotes defenseman. Um, he's locked up on a two and he's got what? Oh, I thought you were laughing at me. Anyway. No, no, no. He's, uh, he's got two no. years left on his deal. Two, yeah, technically two and a half if you include this year, but yeah. Um, after this year, he's still got two years left in his deal. He's a rather young guy, I believe. I don't, I don't think he's very old. Um, but he, I think he's a big body, and that's what they need definitely on that defense because the number one criticism of this team is always getting beaten around in the playoffs. And you, know, you talk about yep. them getting worn down in the playoffs. So they definitely need the size. And I think players like Nick Felino and Trent Frederick are definitely nice to have on their offense. Uh, but yeah, their defense is a little, uh, I hate to say soft, but they're just not big. You know, they're, yeah. they're not, uh, super aggressive type of guys. You look at Matt Grizzle and Brent Carlo. They're just simply, they're not those guys. So I think that's a big trade target for them, whether they get this, the Jacob Chitron or just a different, um, big man for that decor. I, I think that would be a move I would look to hopefully see them make at the deadline. Uh, but I think this team can go really far because, I, I mean, as you've seen, playing seven games against this Boston Bruins team is going to be absolute hell for a lot of teams. So mm-hmm. I, I'm very excited to see uh, how far they can make it. As am I. And one final note, the, the guy that you referenced on the Coyotes, he definitely will require the Bruins to put together quite the package. I know that they are looking for a lot, at least one or two first rounders and maybe an NHL ready young guy. So that'll, that'll be tough for the Bruins, the Bruins to pony up on, but we'll see if, if they can make it happen. Let's move on and talk about the other top tier team in Boston sports right now. And that being the Boston Celtics. They are also playing tonight against Brooklyn at home. And they, like the Bruins, entered tonight with both the best record and point differential in the NBA. They're two games ahead of Milwaukee and three games ahead of Philadelphia in the Eastern Conference standings. They're pretty much like the, like the Bruins as well, 7-3 and three in their last 10 with an overtime win last weekend against the Lakers snapping their own three-game losing streak. So, Dad, I'll start with you on this one. How have the Celtics gotten off to such a great start this season? I I, I, I think they, um, they, I think they were molded by losing to the Warriors. 
Um, they they collectively said this in training camp, preseason, early season, that um, they are focused on one thing and one thing only. That is not only getting back to the finals, but winning the finals. Um, it's not like that probably wasn't a goal before, but I, I'm not sure I've seen them so passionate about it. Um, I think they probably recognize they really had a chance and probably should have won it last year. Um, so I, I think their priorities are much more aligned. I think you could argue in the past it was probably a little bit more selfish. Um, I want to make all-star teams. I want to make, you know, uh, all-pro or league MVP, uh, you know, all-defensive. They're looking for individual stuff. This year, I think they're focused more as a team. Um, I think Malcolm Brogdon is an amazing addition. Um, I wish he would play more. Um, uh, so I, I think they, with the adversity of the coaching issue early on, I said, oh, geez. Mentally, they, they, they were weak to begin with, right? Mm-hmm. Highly talented physically. Very weak mentally. Uh, as a team, they, they just don't have, you know, Nick used the word with the Bruins D soft. They are collectively were a soft team. And when adversity came or challenge, you know, you know, they struggled with that. Um, and I think they, they sort of wore themselves down mentally, maybe a little bit physically last year, but I think they, they saw what they could have had and what that was like. And I think, you know that has inspired them my only concern with them is coaching um i'm not a fan (laughs) i I really am not a fan of this guy um missoula is it yeah joe missoula yeah i i don't know the players seem to like him and respond and that's all that's really important but i i've seen I, i i'm concerned with him when there's big games and big decisions and, um, you know, will, will we have the capability to make certain decisions? You know, if Tatum's off, is he going to say, well, because he's the best player on the team, doesn't matter if he can't hit the side of a barn, he's going to take the last shot. Coach has got to say, nope, we've got other talent and depth that can take that last shot. I've seen a couple of games recently where they just forced it into Tatum when he was not having a good night and you know that cost him game so hopefully he learns from that but um you know there's still <laughs> i still see them going to the finals but I, i'm worried about the coach and you know will they mentally keep it together okay uh, i definitely think malcolm brogdon is fitting in very well in his first year 15 4 and 4 coming off the bench exclusively he could play a little bit more, but 26 minutes a game certainly isn't bad for someone coming off the bench. I mean, if he gets any more minutes than that, he's basically getting starters minutes off the bench. Um, so that they could tinker around with that, but the way things have been going so far, there's really no reason to mess around with anything. Uh, Nick, what, what have you what have you seen in the Celtics this year that's allowed them to just flourish and bounce back? 
Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't think they've really done anything all too different from, you know, the second half of last season aside from acquiring Malcolm Brogdon. I know we were also expecting to have Danilo Gallinari, which you think what he could add to this team and it makes you wonder how much better they could already you know, they could be if they had him playing. Um here's the thing though. I'm a little I'm a little worried about this team. And I understand they're absolutely pounding Brooklyn right now and Brooklyn is one of the best teams in the Eastern Conference. Um at least especially when they're fully healthy but their record shows. But for, for the Celtics seem to go on really really cold spells at various points, either during the season or in games. And and when, when I say cold spell, I mean they can't hit anything. And they almost have to get lucky if or, or play extraordinary defense in these spells. Listen, I, the majority of the season, the majority of games, they go out there, they play their game, Tatum gets his buckets, Brown gets his buckets, they move the ball around. I think that's probably the biggest... Um, biggest reason why they have so much success is because i mean you got al horford shooting one of the highest three-point percentages in the league um and you know you have all these other guys who have really worked on being just spot-up shooters so when tatum and brown can collapse the paint or even brogdon they have guys out on the three-point line finding open space and hit knocking down shots but um look do i think they'll get back to the finals probably but depending on who it's against, the matchup, what it could be, the Warriors seem to own the Celtics, even though they finally won one against them last time um, in Boston. But um, I'm I'm not as I'm not as confident um, as maybe a lot of other people might be about this team. I think they're still, you know, it's kind of like a, you know, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it type deal with these guys. They have the talent to do it, uh, and they certainly have the expectations to do it. Uh, but you know, I, I'd like to see it maybe, uh, you know, actually come playoff time since they have already made it once. You know, it's all about execution now at this point. So we'll see. If, we'll see if they can do it. Yeah, I, I think what a great indicator that they're going to be able to sustain themselves and, and put themselves in a position to get back to the finals, perhaps even win it all this time around, is their improvements down low, rebounding and rim protection. They're both top 10 in the league in both those categories, 7th in rebounding, 4th in blocks. And that was without Robert Williams in the lineup for a good chunk of this season so far. So I I think it's only going to get better with Rob Williams coming back into the mix and with him slowly getting back into shape, being able to play more minutes. If he can stay healthy, which of course is always a a big if, then – that should only improve or at least hold firm. And it, when you put that in a, when you add that to the fact that Brogdon has been a big lift to the bench, he's added another big piece to that. And then, of course, Tatum and Brown have just continued to take their game to a, another level each year. And this year is no different. Tatum is averaging 31 points, nine rebounds, four assists. Jalen Brown, 27, seven, and three. Tatum is is in the forefront of the MVP conversation. If he leads the Celtics to the best record in the NBA, it's going to be a hard press to see someone else get MVP over him, even if a guy like Nikola Jokic or Luka Doncic just keep out putting out triple doubles like they've been. Uh, it, so if if you keep getting all these things working, 
in tandem, yeah, I, I, I do think that the Celtics are going to be able to not only continue their, their hot play, but definitely get, put themselves in a position to get back to the finals again. Now, it, like Nick said, it's not, all, it's not all perfect. There are definitely areas to improve upon. You've got clutch time where it seems that Tatum is a, becomes a little bit of a, a ball, ball, I don't want to say ball selfish, but he definitely clings to the ball a lot, tries to do it all himself, and then he, he turns it over. And with Tatum and Brown just continuing to take their game to the next level, I, I really do think this ultimately this is sustainable. But the things that they do need to improve upon are getting to the rim more and and not relying on three-pointers so much. They shoot over 41 three-pointers a game, and that's kind of like the Warriors mentality. And you saw those are the two teams that played in the finals last year, so you can't necessarily blame them for it. And They they shoot a high enough clip from three-point. They make enough of them. They they make about 37, 38% of their threes to justify taking that many. But they also lead the league in free throw percentage, but they only are 22nd in, th- in free throws attempted. So I would like them to attack more and take advantage of the fact that they're such a good free throw shooting team. And that'll ultimately put teams in foul trouble and be able to put them in even better situations than they already are. So I think there are ultimately some some things that they can tweak upon and improve upon, but you really can't complain with the results so far. The the question then then becomes really for you two, do you guys also believe that they can maintain their current level of success and ultimately get back to the NBA finals? Nick, I'll start with you. Yeah, I mean there's no reason why they can't. Like I said, they have the talent to do it. At this point, it's just all about execution. I think they're playing the right types of basketball. You know, you talked about the amount of three-pointers they take, but that's just the game they play. And when you're shooting it at that clip, uh, no reason to stop. So uh, there's no reason to think that they can't sustain it, you know. It's just about will they, I guess. The only thing I think that really concerns, um, I think, most people, or at least, you know, one of the biggest things that concerns me, aside from what I've already said, is, you know, the inexperience of the head coach. So we'll see when it comes down to the playoffs and crunch time, you know, does does Joe Missoula make the, you know, adjustments necessary? Does he adjust his rotations, you know, taking timeouts at the right time in games when they need them, that kind of stuff. We'll see in the playoffs how that uh, sorts itself out. But um, talent-wise, they definitely should be able to sustain the way they're playing. Dad? Yeah, 100%. The, 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 the talent's there. I think I have no worries about the physical talent. Um, my worries, as Nick said, and I think I mentioned before, is coaching and their mental cohesiveness. They're only, if you look at when, Nick, you mentioned earlier that um, they have these cold spurts. These cold spurts, if you watch how they play, it it, they walk the ball up slowly, one step at a time, barely make over the eight-second line, and then they just stand there and they play hero ball. Um, 
and nobody's moving, nobody's passing. It's just, you know, nine times out of ten, it's Tatum waiting. Everyone just stands there. Everyone knows what's going to happen. And what teams are doing is they're doubling him uh, and or Brown. And neither of them are the best dribblers that far out. So they've got to move the ball. Uh, if they keep the pace and the coaching makes good decisions, um, there could be Banner 18. Love to hear that. So let's move on from the good to the not-so-good. We'll, we'll start with the mediocre, and that being the New England Patriots. So we've had about a month to digest their season coming to an end. They started 5-4 and four going into their bye week before finishing three and five down the stretch. Ultimately, that left them at eight and nine. And with their loss in week 18, it cost them a spot in the playoffs for the second time in three years. So with another mediocre season in the books, the question now becomes for the Patriots, how do they get back to being not only a playoff team consistently, but a true contender? Nick, I'll start with you. What do you want to see, at least in this offseason? Well, I know we're going to talk about it eventually, but we might as well just get to the point. I think the first thing that they need to do is what they already did, was hire an actual offensive coordinator. So Bill O'Brien should be uh, a very good start to a lot of changes that need to be made for this offense. Look, I mean, the defense played pretty well this year. They were, uh, you know, had historically one of the best seasons um, for a Patriots defensive franchise history with the amount of touchdowns that they got on the defensive side of the ball. It's probably how they generated a surprising amount of their points. I don't know what that number would be, but if you, if you find that statistic, it would probably be kind of shocking. Um, so the defense is fine, and it's not like they're really losing a lot of pieces. I looked at their cap situation you know, a few weeks ago. Um, they they got their defense pretty locked up for next year and even the year after, especially with Matthew Judon heading the heading the charge there. So it really comes down to the offense. So step one was hiring that offensive coordinator, and you know Bill O'Brien I think was the best guy out there that they could have gotten. Um, there were obviously some other guys um, you know, who who knew that Kellen Moore would even be available, um, but he just went from Dallas to the Los Angeles Chargers, but. Um, I'm excited to see what uh, Billy OB can do for this offense. Hopefully, Bill lets him actually just do it. You know, let him actually take be in charge of it. I, I just want Belichick's hands off everything because he doesn't know what he's doing anymore at this point. Uh, I, I, I wish they would just get rid of him uh, and move on and let us actually. It feels like as long as Belichick's around, you kind of it feels like they're in an era where like. It still feels like Tom Brady era, just without Tom Brady, as long as Belichick is there. And I think this team needs to really move on from that. So offensively, aside from that, look, you got a couple nice pieces. You know, you, Ramondre Stevenson is amazing, awesome running back. You know, Jacoby Myers is a solid wide receiver. But like Nelson Aguilar, he's got to go. Kendrick Bourne, he's not bad, but he's making way too much money. He makes like $6 million. He's not worth that. You know, Devontae Parker, you're really hopeful about him. He just hasn't lived up to it either. Uh, you know, so in, in the tight ends, Hunter Henry's fine. Jonathan Smith has been underwhelming. The amount of money that these tight ends make is ridiculous. They're making double-digit figures a year to be 
mid at best. So I don't know if the draft is going to be the answer or if they're going to try to try to find some sort of pieces. At this point, I, I think the biggest issue probably circles around Mac Jones uh, and the quarterback situation for the Patriots. I don't know if Bill O'Brien has the answer for uh, that issue, but hopefully you know, a true offensive coordinator coming in can help Mac's confidence get up and maybe bring some stability to him. Uh, get this kid to stop yelling on the sidelines and you know actually start playing some football. Uh, other than that, I mean, I, I don't know. There's not. There's a lot of there's a lot of speculation, a lot of I don't want to say controversy, but um, it, it's just a lot of emotions going around as far as the New England Patriots, especially towards the end of the year in the offseason. Yeah, retooling the offense definitely has to be the first thing on the Patriots' offseason agenda. And Bill O'Brien is definitely a great start. But ultimately, they, they, they really need to figure out whether or not they truly are behind Mac Jones or not, if he is the future at quarterback. He had a, a pretty good, solid first year. And then year two doesn't really show too much improvement he shows flashes of improvement but there also were a lot of moments where he didn't look as good and some of that was because his weapons weren't getting open for him and some of that was because he had very little time in the pocket because his o-line play in front of him was subpar but there were also some highly questionable throws that he made the turnovers were issues at times and ultimately, you look at the QBR that he had for the season, which was 32.7. That's, that is not even mid. That's bad. Uh, so not a great look from him on year two. Hopefully, if they are able to retool that offense, they're able to, he's able to show what he can truly do. And hopefully, Bill O'Brien can help put him in a position to do that. But he's going to need to not only improve himself, but he's going to need everyone around him on the offensive side of things to improve because last year it just it just did not look like a coherent offense whatsoever. And you can point the finger at so many different directions. It's not even funny. Uh, Dad, what do you, what do you so, think the, the Patriots need to do? So, so we're on our third team that we're talking about, right? And And much like the other two, in my opinion, um, the biggest issue, not the only issue, but the biggest issue is coaching. So um, Mac Jones had a, a very good first year um, uh, uh, for a rookie. Uh, out, outstanding coming into that type of offense uh, with that type of pressure. He had a fantastic year. Um, this past year, he, he was atrocious. Um, he was horrible. And is, uh, that's some of that's on him. But I would say if you're splitting up the blame pie on this one, I would say it's you know probably 70, 75% coaching or lack thereof. And then you know, uh, 25, 30% uh, on him. Um, there's no question his behavior was, was horrible. I don't care, you know, you look at Trevor Lawrence, down in um, Jacksonville, and he was in a, a cluster his first year. Coaching was a clown show. 
you never saw him act or react the way Jones did this year. So, you know, that's got to stop. But uh, to me, uh, much like the other two teams, um, what uh, the focus should be on is coaching. They're coaching, especially on the offensive side, but I would say special teams too, um, was a nightmare. And we're just starting to get insight into the locker room of just how bad it was. It was a dumpster fire. And so job one is fix that. Billy O'Brien's a great start to that. Um, But that can't be it. Um, They've got to name a defensive coordinator. They've got to get a real special teams coach. They've got to get a real quarterbacks coach uh, and put those pieces in place. And Belichick has to defer to them so that he can focus on um, what he does best is sort of that broader strategy. Um, I, the players, uh, there there needs to be better talent. The tight ends were atrocious. Uh, Henry was okay. Um, but for someone of his talent and paycheck, he should be a lot better. But again, I, I, I reserve 100% judgment on the talent until there is significant upgrades in the coaching um, because I think that sets the stage they lost the locker room in training camp and again whether you agree or not that you know that makes a difference it does it with the Bruins um, you've seen it with the Celtics um, you see it with other teams Um, you have the right coaching in place and players will respond the players checked out uh, again in training camp so um I think if they fix that, and Kraft has had enough, and he's trying to put his foot down, but uh, I'm just concerned that um, it is past Belichick's time. And so I know we said last year that he's got to show it this year. He he didn't. Um, I'm not sure how much rope you give him, but to me, this is it. Uh, he's got to get a, a professional coaching staff, um, and he's got to have them – um, sort of act in the way that coaches these days need to act and interact with their players. And if that happens, I think some of these players that, you know, had subpar years, just like the Bruins, Bruins had extreme talent, but just didn't respond because they didn't like the coach. They didn't respond to the coach. So they didn't put the effort in. And again, like it or not, um, that makes a difference. So fix that, and I think they'll be back in the playoffs next year. Mm-hmm. We'll see. I mean, FPI, ESPN's FPI had the Patriots at 13th this year, so they definitely played below their expectations for what they should have been. They should have been a playoff team, but obviously that was not the case. Not only do I think that they need to improve on offense – but they could they one thing that I would like to see them on defense because we haven't really talked about the defense because the defense hasn't really been a problem with this team because they're always very good at holding up a bend uh, don't break kind of defense and they force a bunch of turnovers and they there were points where they were scoring more than the offense and that's just how bad the offense was at times but one thing I would like to see on the defensive side is to continue the youth movement and, and build that around Matthew Judon and Jonathan Jones. 
I think those are your two best players. You know that Devin McCourty, Matthew Slater, and I know Matthew Slater's special teams, but just kind of roping him in. You're, you're going to be losing your, your leaders, especially on the defensive side of things. You need to figure out who's going to take those kind of leadership spots and who is going to kind of be the guys on defense. Judon's, I don't think he's a long-term play here. I mean, he's been disgustingly good in the sacks department for the the Patriots for the past two years that he's been in town. But I I don't know if he's going to play in New England the rest of his his career because he's probably going to want to get paid. I, I don't see him being the hometown discount type of guy. So you need to continue to build def- through the draft defensive on the defensive side of things. I don't know if that necessarily starts this year. I, personally, I would like to see that a little bit. But I understand that offensive line and, and your receivers, whether it be wide receiver or tight end, are, are bigger issues that need to be addressed. And so if you're going to spend your high draft picks on those, by all means, that's the best probably thing to do. But I, I do think we just can't sit here and act like the defense is all perfect and, and that they don't need to be addressed whatsoever. I, I do think they need to continue to add depth to the defensive side of the ball and get, continue to get younger. And I think that if you do that, if you're able to do that, you're hitting on those mid to late picks, kind of piece together in free agency and, and, and provide more depth on the defensive side of things, then I think if you're able to also retool the offense to some degree, then yeah, they should absolutely be a playoff team next year. But that's ask that is also asking for a lot of things to go right. And you saw that in the past couple of years, they just haven't been able to do so. So it'll be it'll be interesting to see how the Patriots kind of attack their needs in the offseason and how the roster shapes up coming into training camp. But that's not the only NFL bit I do want to talk about. I would also like to get your guys' thoughts on the NFL playoffs. They have finally reached its final stop. The Chiefs and the Eagles are set to clash in Super Bowl 57 in about a week and a half. But let's talk about the games that led up to this point. Got wild card round, divisional round, conference championship just took place last weekend. So, Nick, what game what player or what moment what what thing has stood out to you the most so far in this playoffs oh boy um that's a that's a question i wish i was more prepared for um i can take I, I a guess, first crack at it uh okay well were you uh were you gonna say josh allen <laughs> I was. I was going to say that, Josh uh, Allen and the Bills, and what the heck? Yeah, I mean that that you know that's the first thing that came to mind for me because uh, I mean he just looked like he, not himself at you know at the end stretch of the season and the playoffs. So I I don't know, man. Um, that was that was weird. That was very weird to see from a guy normally is dominant so um and I, you know I, I think it just came down to his decision making uh he just was not making good choices with the ball down the field you know it kind of just seemed like every other play they were throwing a deep shot 
and you know you could tell um, Stefan Diggs was very upset about it. So I, I I don't know. They got some things to figure out there in Buffalo. I think everybody thought they'd be a sure shot to be uh, one of the top dogs in the league going forward, but uh, I don't know. Uh, that that's not as sure of a, of a statement uh, anymore as I think it, it might have been to a lot of people, you know, a year ago. Do you want to elaborate yeah, on seemed, that, Dad? I think he seemed to show signs of his first couple of years in the league when he, you know, people were ripping him left and right because he was just making silly, stupid mistakes. Um, and he seemed to fix all that stuff. And, and, and he was just a beast. I mean, you couldn't tackle him. He could run. He's making big throws. He was accurate. Um, but you could see him trending towards the end of the season into the playoffs just making more and more mistakes. And I don't, you know, I don't know if that's coaching or, I mean, obviously he's executing it, but um, I, I, I don't know. I'm not a big fan of, of their coach. So uh, I, I don't, I don't know. It's like Nick said, it's puzzling because he was just such on a upward trend and, and just dominating it him and Diggs were just like on the same page and, and then just splat. Uh, to me, that's just the biggest puzzling thing of the, of the playoffs is how the bills just laid an egg. Um, I don't want to take anything away from the Bengals. The Bengals are, they're a damn good team. Um, one of my favorite teams. And I, I wish they, they went uh, a little further along as well, but, um, the, the other biggest thing for me is just Mahomes. He, he's just, he's my MVP. He, he's just, uh, he's just amazing. What he did last week, you know, a high ankle, ankle sprain, those things are insanely painful. And, yep. you know, oh, 99% of people can't play with that. And he played and he, he was the best quarterback on the field. Okay, he played on that because it wasn't that severe of a high ankle sprain. I, I, you and everybody else in the media need to pipe down. <laughs> this kid's been in the league for five years, and we're acting like he's freaking Joe Montana. All right, listen, he's a fantastic quarterback. He's one of the best in the league. But that high ankle sprain, clearly, if that was a legitimate high ankle sprain, there's there's no way he's playing football. There's no way he's able to put any weight on it unless he's voided up on painkillers like you wouldn't believe. Look, um, the, his performance in that game last weekend was, was very good. But um, I don't know. That game was one of the worst officiated games I've ever seen. That was That was definitely a penalty on that last play, you know, the notorious last play with Joseph Asai. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, what the hell was the third and nine where they gave him a free extra play? That's never happened before. We're just giving out free extra plays. And the amount of holding calls that were missed uh, in that game, and especially on the last play. I mean, this is, it's, it's crazy because now the Internet is spiraling into the NFL being rigged, uh, which is made for great content. But, uh, I mean... Obviously, it's not rigged, but it's it, it start it, it looks like it when you have officiating this bad, uh, this the the moniker the 
the amount of missed calls in big moments, you know, that have a, a, a significant impact on the outcome of a game. Uh, and, and that just bugs me. It's not that the Chiefs didn't, uh, you know, deserve to be in the Super Bowl. They're one of the best teams in the league. Uh, but they're also one of the most hateable teams in the league. And I got to sit yeah. and, and watch Patrick Mahomes and his stupid family, <laughs> you know, play in another damn Super Bowl while people complain about the Bengals being, you know, like the next Patriots team or whatever. Meanwhile, Patrick Mahomes has been in the AFC Championship game five years in a row. I'm sick of it. Yeah. First first things first. Let, let's address the, the Patrick Mahomes. I also hate his family. But you have to respect the player. You yes. never have been hurt in your time. life. So you cannot sit here and act like you know a damn thing about playing through injuries. So that's, that's where we're going to set there. For him to have any sort of ankle sprain and play through it and then throw for nearly 350 yards in a conference championship game, that is impressive at a minimum. So I don't want to take anything away from what Mahomes was able to do. And clearly, he was still feeling it. He saw that one play where he rolled out to his left, and he tried to throw off of his foot, and he came up hobbling. So he was not anywhere close to 100% in that game. So you can sit here and try and and say, oh, he wasn't hurt that bad. But he was not 100%, and he still went out there and found a way to do just enough to win that game. Now, yes, the refereeing in that game was absolutely horrendous, specifically the second half. It felt like every single time a flag was thrown, it went against the, the Cincinnati Bengals. And that was absurd. The play, the third down play in question, at, in the moment, was absolutely ridiculous. I don't know if you caught it or not, but they did show that apparently they had inadvertently started the clock when they tried to reset things, and the back judge caught it too late, tried running in to blow it dead, and for the second time in that game, they blew it dead too late, and so the whole play played out. There was a false start earlier in the game, same situation, they nobody apparently heard the whistle being blown and they just played through on a false start. So there I don't want to in the moment it looked absolutely ridiculous and I was just as mad as you were right now, but when you saw that you at least understood, okay, they were just trying to correct themselves from making another mistake, but they in that process made themselves look even dumber. So Really unfortunate series of events in that game. The officiating certainly was not up to par. And the way that it ended with the roughing the passer out of bounds, unnecessary roughness, whatever you'd like to call it, was just the icing on the cake and the worst way for that game to end. The The other thing that I do want to talk about is the other championship game, the, the NFC championship game. The way that played out with Brock Purdy tearing his UCL in the first drive of the game for San Francisco, that just completely changed the outlook, the course of that game. And it was only amplified by his backup, fourth-string quarterback Josh Johnson, exiting with a concussion halfway into the game. So the 49ers had no pass offense for practically half the game. They had no chance. If they had any sort of competent quarterback play, 
I wonder if that game would have been different to a degree where San Fran would have found a way to win. I don't know if they would have necessarily won it, but it certainly, I think, would have been a much, much closer and much more interesting game than the way that it played out. I mean, for the 49ers, just four quarterbacks all getting hurt, two in the conference championship game, that's just the toughest of ways because their their offense and their defense were just clicking on all cylinders. Brock Purdy was 10-0 going into that game. Like, they, they could do no wrong. They made all the moves that they needed to make. They traded for Christian McCaffrey. I mean, for that to be the way that their season ends, yeah, that's, that's tough. Yeah, I don't know that we've ever seen anything like that. Um, just absolutely quarterback room cleaned out um, by injuries. I mean, they, that game was over as soon as that happened. And um, it was awful to watch I, I think it deflated the 49ers um they're they had a really good year um I'm not sure they were as great as their record but um you know without a quarterback you're not gonna win a game like that no 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 you're not uh, but real quick let's let's wrap up that the NFL and why don't you guys give me your quick Super Bowl picks? Who you got, Chiefs or Eagles? Nick, go ahead and lead us off. Eagles. I I I, I refuse to root for Kansas City. I'm going Eagles. Jalen Hurts, take me take me home. <laughs> uh, oh, this is a tough one. Um, I, I I don't want to root for the Eagles. I hate the Eagles. Um, but you know they're just they're they're probably playing uh, as well as if not better than anyone else. I think they'll probably win a close game. Um, but if, if Mahomes is is he's going to get two weeks, so he's going to be more mobile. Um, again, he's having an MVP season. Um, and if Chris Jones plays as well as he has been playing, he is un. Stoppable. There, I, I'm not sure there's anyone that can stop him. But um, Philly has a great offensive line, so I, I, I think they have a better chance of anyone of figuring out how to manage him. And if that's done, I think Philly will win a close game. I'm definitely also rooting for Philly as well, even though they beat the Patriots in that Super Bowl. Yeah. Screw Nick Foles, but. Uh, I can't. I can't root for Kansas City either. Uh, I I mean, I think Kansas City will win the game, but I will definitely be rooting for the Philadelphia Eagles to find a way to pull it out. I just – every time you doubt Patrick Mahomes to do something, he goes out there and finds a way to at least put his team in a position to win. And more often than not, he finds a way to win. Uh, it sucks saying that, but that's just simply where we're at. It doesn't matter who he's got on offense. He, he just finds a way to make it work. Uh, uh, hopefully that Philly running attack, which has been just lethal, continues to be lethal. And that way Jalen Hurts doesn't have to throw the ball the majority of the game. Because if it turns into a shootout with passing attacks, the, I don't, the Eagles just aren't going to be able to keep up. 
But if if the, the Eagles whoa, can whoa 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 the Eagles aren't going to be able to keep up. Patrick Mahomes has no wide receivers. They're all hurt or trash. Did we forget about Devonta Smith and AJ Brown and Dallas Goddard? You're telling me you'd rather have those? You, you wouldn't rather have those guys? Jalen Hurts is not going to be able to throw the ball for 300 plus yards in a Super Bowl. Oh my ass! Yes, he could. They don't. No. He doesn't need to because of his mobility. He could just simply run for you know much quicker, much faster, uh, without having to throw the ball fifty times like the Tampa Bay Tampa Bay Buccaneers offense. He never needs to, but he if you're absolutely relying, could if they needed to. If you're relying on Hertz to to throw for three hundred plus yards, um, you're giving Kansas City the opportunity to win. Yep. Mm. Yeah, yeah it, but I don't, I don't think that situation will happen. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think it'll it'll it won't come into play. But if if Kansas City can figure out a way to make him do that, uh, and mm. you know they have the better coaching staff, um, you know, then they they've got a good chance. I think that's that's got to be their game plan is make him throw the ball. Yeah, I don't know. The, the the Eagles defense is the best defense Kansas City has faced maybe all year, if not um, you know, recently. I mean, Buffalo's defense was an absolute shell of itself. Uh, they didn't even face them. But uh, the Bengals defense is is good. It's not. I don't think it's better than Phillies, especially the secondary is definitely not better than Phillies. And the Bengals kept them to 20 points. I'm not counting that last field goal. Um, but so I don't know. I, I don't. I don't see it turning into a, you know, high-scoring, no defense-having shootout. Yeah. Um, so I, I think this. I think game script should be great uh, for Jalen Hurst to be able to mix up the balance between, you know, using his feet, you know, to scramble for yards, also hand the ball off and throw. I, you know, I, I think I. I'm, I'm gonna say something right now. I would not be surprised if the Eagles win by two scores or more. Oh, wow. Okay. Interesting. Well, on that note, let's let's kind of start to wrap things up, and we'll touch on the Boston Red Sox real quick. Obviously, Yuck. a lot has changed on the roster, a lot of overhaul in, during the offseason, Xander Bogarts being the big departure there, but also Jeter Downs. And Eric Hosmer, Matt Barnes, all DFA'd, Rich Hill, Nathan Avaldi, all left. Let's not act like the majority of that list isn't good players. Let's not act like those are good players. J.D. Martinez is gone. Michael Walkov remains unsigned. Josh Taylor was traded away. Tommy Pham did not come back. I mean, you can sit there and say most of those names aren't good. But that was the core of the Red Sox's production last year. A lot of those names outside of Devers, because uh, without sale last year. So, uh, sure, Jeter Downs is nasty. Oh yeah, very much. <laughs> but you look at the additions that they have made. They brought in Jolie Rodriguez, Chris Martin, and Trash. closer Kenley Good. Jansen for the bullpen as well as a couple Gosh. of others in Wyatt Mills. Uh, they brought in... Who the hell is Wyatt Mills? Are you going to let me finish, or are you just going to have asinine reactions? Good. Is he a pitcher? Yes. That's who is they got from the Royals to DFA Hosmer. 
is that the guy that they just got that uh, actually he balked three times in an inning? Oh, God. Is that really the guy that we just got? Uh, the, uh, the guy that they just got, I can't remember the names, but the guy that they just got, uh, John Tomasi tweeted this. He goes, oh, great upgrade for the Sox. They, they've got a, a pitcher now that has done something I've never seen in my life. Oh, three okay. times I, in an inning. It's Richard Bleer. It's the guy they got oh, in, the, uh, in the Josh Taylor trade. Oh. Oh, the trade. The Matt Barnes yeah. trade. Yeah, yeah, it was from, recent. So from the Marlins, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, he he balked three times oof. in an inning, uh, apparently. Yeah, running in the winning run or something like that. But anyways, the, 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 this is a this is the epitome of dumpster fire. Um, the team sucks. Did you did so? I, I, you got to watch how the fan thing that they had in Springfield, Mass, this past week, which is a, a fan honk party, right? So it's it's just all these, the pink hats and everything is wonderful. They have them all there every year. They booed the living crap out of ownership and, and blue. And it was comical. And these ownership and management still don't get it. They still don't get it. Highest ticket prices in in uh, baseball, and one of the highest in sports, and uh, last place finish last year. And you get rid of one of the favorite players who still has talent. And you sign Devers, and they think they've just won the World Series. It, it's this is. This is just an epic nightmare. Yeah, Nick, any quick thoughts on the Red Sox? Oh, I've got a lot of thoughts. This team sucks. They're, they're, <laughs> they're an embarrassment to the city. I mean, they're they, like, you think the Patriots are bad, are bad and they have a lot of issues going on within their organization. They got nothing going comparatively to the Red Sox. Red Sox have nothing. Their best pitcher is a guy who can't, can't stay healthy off the field. Chris Sale's an absolute bum. He's going to find some way to miss half the season or more for some stupid reason. Like, he's going to get, like, bit by a shark, like, on a beach or something and miss half the year because of it. Okay. Oh, James Paxton's coming back. Dude hasn't pitched in over, like, two years. Um, and like you said, they still haven't signed Michael Waka, who was their best pitcher last year. Like, I don't get it. Like, how much do you think you've got to pay for Michael Walker? Yes, his value probably went up after this year. But it's Michael Walker. He was your best pitcher last year. Sign him. And, you're, you know, your second best pitcher, Ivaldi, gone. I mean, it's it's ridiculous. It's this stupid it's, – it's what High and Bloom did in Tampa Bay that he was allowed to do in a small market franchise where nobody cares about – Anyway, where I left off was just simply with Michael Walker. I mean, you just got to sign the guy. He's your best pitcher last year. And with Nate Evaldi, like all, all these, uh, you know, nobody cared when Heimbloom did this at Tampa Bay because it was a small market team and they have no fans. You're in Boston now, buddy, Mr. Bloom. Okay. Everybody is watching you, you know, like a hawk. So all of this, like, you know, trying to build for the future that he's doing. Like, sure, the, the Sox have, you know, a few nice prospects now. I think they have, like, 
four prospects in the top 100, although Tristan Casas is one of them, and he's probably going to be on the big league roster for this whole next season. So it's really like three prospects in the top 100, which is cool, right? But you're in Boston. Nobody wants to sit around and watch you build prospects for five years just for then to wait another like two or three years after you've built a farm system to be competitive. And competitive in Boston is not competitive in other places. Okay, competitive in Milwaukee is like wild card, wild card team, like eighty six and eighty two, like whatever, uh, whatever the math is. Competitive in Boston is like ninety plus wins, close to a hundred wins, like top in the AL East, at least second in the AL East. You know, like they that's competitive in Boston. I don't think Hein Bloom really grasps how different it is being the GM in Boston versus Tampa Bay. Your expectations are so much higher. Okay. And the only reason he's allowed to get away with this lunacy here is because ownership is just that. Yeah. So they, they got a lot to figure out. It's just, it's, they're going to absolutely suck this year. I'm not going to watch a single second of it, which is a lie. I'll probably actually watch a little bit of it, but not on my own will. It'll probably just happen to be on in places that I am. But it, it, it's going to be a horrible watch. Do not watch the Red Sox. Watch the WNBA. That's my advice. Jeez. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so basically what you're telling me is Masataka, Yoshida, Justin Turner, Corey Kluber, Adam Duvall. That does nothing for you? Oh, okay. How old is Turner? 38. Yeah. The only intriguing part of any of the or na- the only intriguing name you just mentioned is the guy from Japan, Masataka Yoshida or whatever. Uh, that that I would actually be interested to see. Justin Turner is washed. Okay. Adam Duvall is mid. Um, what were the other names? Uh, I, I have such a bad memory. Um, I'm out. I'm as old as Justin Turner. Help me out, Ryan. What were the names you just said again? Corey Kluber. Oh, come on. Corey Kluber. Corey Kluber, who just had an extremely mid-season. This is the thing. Ownership and Highbloom think they could just sign a bunch of mid-tier players and that people are going to rejoice. You're not recreating the 2013 Red Sox roster. That was undoubtedly the most mid-roster that ever won a World Series. You're not recreating that. I'm sorry. You're not. They're not. Uh, the only thing I would disagree is they're not trying to win. They're getting these players. That's the problem. Uh, I know. But they're, uh, they're not getting these players and with the eye towards winning. They're just filling roster spots cheap. Um, there's no way you think a 38-year-old um, is, is – is going to do anything for you. Otherwise they would have kept Xander. <laughs> so they don't care about winning. And that's the, that's the stunning thing is that money isn't an issue for this franchise, but I, I, I don't know why they are not trying to win. Yeah. It's baffling. Yeah. You hit it on the nail. They, they won't, they wouldn't pony up for Xander Bogarts. They won't, they wouldn't pay Xander. And then, they shell out the farm 
for Devers shortly thereafter when they see the the media and the fan outcry for Bogarts leaving, uh, especially for the, the deal that was left. I mean, yes, it was a lot of money for a guy that's already into his thir- about to be in his 30s if he's not already there. I forget how old he is exactly, but I, I know that contract is going to take him close to age 40, but I mean, it's just... But you, you could have got him for a lot less in dollars and years if you took care of it last year yep. and they chose not to. Yes. And so they, they not only what's nauseating about it, not only do they not care about winning, they don't care about the fans. They don't care about any, any of their passion. They don't care. And I think that's just infuriated people. They, they, they're getting hit in the pocket now. No one's watching their games. Their viewership went down last year. Um, it's it's a it's a mess. It is yeah. an epic. They are by far the worst team in in the city. Yeah, I think the the ownership issues stem from the Fenway Sports Group, John Henry, and all the other schmucks. They have their they have their hands LeBron. in. Yes, LeBron. <laughs> they have their hands in in too many too many baskets. They just with Liverpool, the the Red Sox. Like I think they, I think that group has ownership ties to like the Penguins now or something like that. Yeah, like they own the Penguins. It, it's it's they they clearly just don't care. They're just trying to to make money and just be green and profitable. Yeah. And just have as many revenue streams as possible, and the cost of it is that you're just going to see all those teams start to suffer in in terms of their competitiveness. You're already seeing it with the Red Sox. Liverpool had a great year, from what I remember, uh, about a year or two ago. But I think they've come back down to earth a little bit, and, and the Penguins are still good, but they're they're certainly not. A, a championship caliber team anymore. I think they're still a team that can win a playoff series or two, but I don't think they're a team that has has enough left in the tank to get to the Stanley Cup final. Uh, so I just think that they've got too many hands in their basket and they just too many baskets to put their hands in. I, I, whatever the, the metaphor you want to make, Basically, the point is they just don't care about anything other than being profitable. And if that means that all of their teams are not winners, then so be it. And that that's, that just sucks. I think we're all on the same page there. It just sucks that the Red Sox are just not worth our time anymore. Yep. Only one thing's going to fix it. People stop going to the games and stop watching. Yep. Yeah, and that'll never happen because you get too many Fairweather fans who just go yep. to Fenway Park for the experience. Which, listen, yep. I understand it's, it's a wonderful thing going to the ballpark, you know, and not really, you know, just trying to have a good time regardless of the outcome. But so you, you, because it's Boston, you know, if this was a small market team, amongst the other differences that you would get with that. Oh my God! Sorry, I just got distracted. I know. I just saw that too. <laughs> <laughs> that was an absolute snipe by Pop. I hit Eighteen million dollar man. I have it on mute too. Uh, it was just an. It was just an, uh, like a reaction. I couldn't help it. Anyway, if the if the Red Sox were a small market team, like and they were in a small market city, like you could you, you could say that 
you know, fans might actually stop going to the game because most of the fans for a small market team are probably more towards diehard fans than just casuals. Because you're in Boston, you get a lot of casual drunkards who just want to go to Fenway, get drunk, have some hot dogs, and just be in a ballpark and just, you know, be, you know, you know, the bleacher creatures, right? You don't, you, you, you don't, you can't get away from that. You, there's no, there's no way in which that tickets don't sell. You know, will they sell out every game? I mean, probably still, but should they? No, but they're still going to sell their tickets despite raising ticket prices for a shit team. Yeah. People like going outdoors on a summer night and yeah. doing stuff. They won't. You watch in April. Early on, people will be interested to see what it will be look like. But when it craps the bed and those, it's forty degrees. It'll oh, be yeah. half empty. It'll be half empty. And I'll tell you what, I will be. I not once the sports books and the mobile sports uh, apps open in Massachusetts, which they definitely will by the time the season starts. I will be uh, quick to betting against the Red Sox in every game. I will go broke betting against this team if I have to. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's the state of the Red Sox. Definitely the worst of the the bunch there. Uh, before we let you go, Dad, any any other thoughts you'd like to talk about? Maybe some college sports thoughts on the college football playoff, college basketball. Any any other thoughts you'd like to add before we let you go? Um, I would just say, looking forward to March Madness. Um, I, I think um, this year, probably more than many, it's 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 wide open. I don't think you can say any one team is or uh, is a lock uh, to win it this year. I think it should be an awesome tournament. And, um, I, I can't wait for that to get going. Yeah, the the ACC is down. Duke and UNC are both unranked, which I am both sad and not sad to to see. Finally, but uh, the Big Twelve is disgustingly good. Literally, they have nine tournament caliber teams out of ten, and their worst team in the league literally just beat the number thirteen team in the country the other night. So uh, that the Big Twelve is going to continue to pump out tournament teams it's just whether or not one of them can find a way to win it like they did last year in kansas so but yeah has a conference ever put in every team no i don't think it's possible because you look at it there's usually one stinker every year yeah someone has to lose you're not gonna get everyone within like six and ten ten and six someone's gonna have a, a crappy a year in in league play and it's going to cost them a tournament spot so right but if there were were a conference to pull it off it would be the big 12 yeah but yeah i can't wait for march madness either agreed yep so cool definitely want to thank you for hopping on dad we we appreciate it but uh don't think you want to stick around for our last talking point (laughs) But you're not going to talk about uh, Rowdy Roddy Piper or Chief J Strongbow? Who is that? Who is Chief J Strongbow? Oh, that can't be a real person. It is yeah. one of the best wrestlers in the 70s and the 80s. Look it up. 
Look at look up your history. Come on. History is not my best subject. All right. Have fun. Yeah. So thank you, Dad. Appreciate it. Take it easy. But uh so Nick, I before we let you go, I obviously have to get your thoughts on the Royal Rumble pay-per-view that went down last weekend. I know you're not watching as much wrestling these days as you once did, but I know you tuned in and watched that. Let me get your thoughts on both the Royal Rumble matches themselves as well as the fallout from the main event world title match. Yeah, so um, I, I think the men's match was very enjoyable, um, as I've been told by uh, other sources uh, in the WWE, you know, uh, environment and atmosphere. Um, you know, I think uh, apparently the match set up a lot of you know, feuds, or you know, helped to develop a lot of feuds. So, um, from a you know from a broad perspective, I, I enjoyed the match. You know, Booker T was kind of surprising I, I i didn't think he could still do a spin rooney so uh that, you know i would have lost money if i bet on that so um but the match itself was good um the ending i i think most people who follow follow the company kind of kind of knew cody was going to take that one home but you know i didn't even think of logan paul being in it at all because i thought he had some big knee injury or something so yeah, uh, he, he he tore his ACL, I'm pretty sure, at the last Saudi show. Yeah, and that couldn't have been that long ago. So, um, But either way, that spot him and Ricochet did, uh, that was actually incredible. That, was, uh, I, that looked like it must have hurt a lot more than they showed. So <laughs> shout out to them for doing that. Um, but yeah, you know, I think, you know, the thing I noticed in, in that match, at least, Cody and I I have to I have to say this before I even say his name. Whoever in creative decided to rename Walter Gunther <laughs> needs to get fired and then <laughs> fired for their next job. It's one of the worst names I've ever heard in in like pro wrestling history. Like Gunther, it's that's so bad. No who. It's gross to say. I what who in, in what board meeting said, "Hey, why don't we change his name to Gunther?" It's probably that R word, Vince McMahon. Like <laughs> Jesus Christ, that's so bad. <laughs> Anyways, I also felt they Cody and uh, I'm, I'm just gonna call Walter. Uh, Cody and Walter went on for like a long time. When, yes, you know, just one on one at the end. That was weird. I, I looked. Um, I looked over to my roommate Jimmy. And I was like, "That's this. This is getting really long. Like, this is the longest I think it's ever. If you could, if you could look in the archives and t- like look at how long the last two competitors, on average, normally, you know, like are fighting in the ring until the match is won, I feel like this one would have been the longest. I think but, it would uh, definitely be up there. There are definitely two ways it goes when it gets down to the final two. It's either very quick and they just get in get to the final sequence and that's that and they keep it keep it hot or it bogs down into like almost a semi one-on-one <laughs> match. 
Sorry, and, sorry. I, I couldn't help it. The Bruins scored again. Sorry. All right, continue. And they, it, it just, like you said, it just feels like it, it loses a little bit of steam because it feels like it's gone on for forever. Uh, what also I found funny was the placement of Cody Rhodes. This was supposed to be his big comeback from his torn pectoral muscle back in June. And for him to come out as announced, he was announced for the Royal Rumble before the show on the final Raw or the second to last Raw before the Rumble uh, as uh, going to be in the Royal Rumble match, for him to come out as number 30 just felt like a missed opportunity, just felt like a, a misstep. If you already know he's going to be there, why would you save him for 30? Have him come out in like the the, the, the early 20s, the mid-20s, and, and have him at least come out there. Don't wait till number 30 when you already n- make number 30 spot predictable. Like, there are some years where they let the number 30 spot be up for grabs and someone gets to win that spot before the Rumble, but in years where... 30 could be anyone for them to just make it someone that they hyped up and pre-announced. I, I just felt, felt weird. It, it felt like that, that was not the way to go. And then it almost felt like, like Walter and Cody should have swapped spots. Like why does Cody have the underdog comeback story in number 30, and the dominant intercontinental champion big man, Walter, is starting one and run and trying to run the gauntlet. Like, that doesn't... Dude, I, I, I don't know, will this ring a bell for you, but... And this is going off no hard evidence. I feel like they always have the intercontinental champion entering the Royal Rumble early and, and lasting for a long time, or like one of the two. It's... Yeah, it's it's happened in recent memory. The first one that comes to mind for me is the year that Triple H won the Royal Rumble and it was for the WWE World Heavyweight Championship. This the person he eliminated to win it at the end was Dean Ambrose, aka John Moxley, who was the Intercontinental Champion at the time. And you just yeah. knew there was no way the Intercontinental Champion is about to also win the world title. So I don't yeah, understand. Like, I'm, I'm thinking of like Dolph Ziggler, The Miz, Chris Jericho. These mm-hmm. are all guys that like have definitely been like one or two and then have lasted like a long time in the Rumble match. I don't know what the obsession with the creative booking is with having them enter early and staying forever, but uh, just a little nugget there. I kind of just noticed yeah. as well. But I, I don't know what it is either. I, I don't know what it is either. I would have liked more surprises. I, I hate that at the last second, like the the day of the show, they announced o- the almost the entire rest of the field, and they only left three spots as surprises. Yeah. I, it just the Royal Rumble is supposed to be about surprises. You just do not announce all of basically the entire field before the before the match. That 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 takes away I... from it. I, I would rather them not announce a single person, to be honest. And I understand that, like, marketing will never let you do that because yeah. you have to, like, market your event with people. But it's like, imagine they just don't tell you who's going to be in it. Like, you every every single, like, 
every single entrant, like, you know, every single number that comes out, you know, like, you don't know if it's going to, like, you don't know that somebody's going to be in a match. I would, I would really enjoy that. Yeah, I, I would, I, I'm I okay with them. That is just going back and watching all the ones. Yeah, I'm okay with them announcing, like, up to half the field. Because, like you said, marketing will never allow it. They have to announce some big names for it. But, like, keep, keep a, you got to keep a good chunk of the field a mystery, a guessing game. If yeah. everyone knows who's coming out for the Royal Rumble, that just that takes away a big part of the Royal Rumble match, in my opinion. Yep. So, I, I agree. that part I did not like. I... I thought they also misbooked Cody for the way he won it, but I don't hate that he won it. I, I, them opening the show with the Royal Rumble, the men's Royal Rumble match was also interesting. I did not expect that, but given that Cody won, I guess it was it was a formality, and they just wanted to get it over with. Um, I personally would have like to see Seth Rollins have lasted longer in the match. Uh, I thought he was a prime candidate if it wasn't Cody. If Cody wasn't the the be-all, end-all decision, I, I would have liked to see Seth towards the end. And obviously they left out Sami Zayn because of what happened in the main event, and we'll get to that just shortly mm-hmm. here. But real quick, let me get your thoughts on the women's Royal Rumble match as well. Rhea Ripley of the Judgment Day starts at number one, runs the table, and wins the Royal Rumble match. Yeah, I think everybody saw this one coming, too. Um, at least that's the sense I got from people still paying attention. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think, uh, I mean, she was a clear pick for it. So, you know, I'm not like, you know, I, I can't say that I don't, I, like, I completely understand why they had her win. Um, and, you know, entering a number one, I think that's, you know, a nice little extra little uh, seasoning to it as well. Um, I thought the way that the match ended, the spot that they did to end the match, where she flips Liv Morgan from uh, you know, over the rope with like her, her ankles or whatever, that was kind of cool. I didn't see that coming. I was like, damn, you know. And they used it as a good way to, since they knew Rhea Ripley was going to win, and everybody knew it, they kind of just used it as a way to get some um, uh, young NXT talent, you know, showcased on on the show. Mm-hmm. Um, I am horrible with names. But the Stark girl, was it like Zoe Stark or something yes. like that? Um, she looked really good. Uh, pause. Um, she, she looked good in the match. Um, I fell in love with Roxanne Perez um, immediately. Uh, the current NXT Women's Champion. Of course, naturally. Um, I, I, I can't off the top of my head think of any others, but... Um, Indy Hartwell. You know, it, Oh yeah, true, true, true. I actually recognize that name from my, my experience, but um, yeah, no, I mean it was it, it was solid. It wasn't, you know. I feel like the women's rumbles are a little more predictable, you know, than the men's, and the men's are usually predictable. So it's it's just a little tough to um, with the rumbles sometimes when you know who's probably going to win. But you know, I, I thought I thought both rumbles were were decent. You know, I thought they were pretty solid. Um, Nothing to go crazy about, but, um, you know, the Rumble is a, it's a fun event. It's once a year, so definitely enjoyed it. Uh, I did not enjoy the Mountain Dew Pitch Black match. That shit was horrible. Yeah, um, I was going to ignore know. that. <laughs> As an outsider, I don't know who the hell Uncle Howdy is, but it sounds stupid. And he, whoever played him missed uh, 
L.A. night. I was going to call him Eli Drake. He missed it by a mile. Like, it wasn't even close. It's like, buddy, you're landing on, like, a mattress or, like, an air pad or something. Like, just get next to him. Just land next to him. Like, you miss it by a mile. The whole thing blew up anyways. So just, you don't mess it up that bad. Yeah, he did. And the match was horrible. Like, I, the concept, cool. Like, glow in the dark, it, it, kind of cool. But the actual match itself, terrible. Anyways, let's talk about the main event. Main event, uh, I was able to keep up with basically everything Bloodline just by being on TikTok. I got Bloodline TikToks, you know, all the time. It's the only thing that I kept up with. Uh, that I have kept up with over the past like two, three years. So however, however long that bloodline, th- you know, storyline has been going on, that's pretty much the only thing I know. And it's been carrying the company uh, from COVID all the way through until now. Uh, so or at least Roman Reigns has. Uh, I did not realize how invested people were um, until I really started to pay attention to like the actual octane of the crowd and some of the clips that I had seen. And when Sami Zayn hit Roman in the back of that steel chair, kind of a la Seth Rollins to the shield, uh, that pop was incredible. I haven't heard a pop like that. I, you know, I, I guess I, you know, I haven't been watching, so I can't really say. But I imagine there hasn't been a pop like that in a long, long time. So the fact, you know, kudos to the creative team for actually building a, a, a beautiful storyline. Um, I I don't know where they're going to go from here, though, because it really confused me because I kind of expected it to end the way it did, just given what I know. But with Cody winning the Rumble, and now he's calling out Roman, right? I feel like they're missing big time by not having Sami Zayn challenge Roman at WrestleMania. So I, I was talking to Jared about this after the show. Uh, my resident WWE, you know, insider. <laughs> and we were talking about scenarios here. And what we came, what we, we came down to uh, agreeing would be the most satisfying is if at the elimination chamber, they had a match between Sammy and Roman for the title. Mm-hmm. And uh, Sammy got like screwed over by the bloodline, so then they insert Sammy into the WrestleMania match, make it a triple threat, kind of like how they did. Um, I mean, they did it at WrestleMania 30 ish with Daniel Bryan. Um, I think they they did this. Maybe it wasn't WrestleMania, but they did that kind of angle um, at, at an event one of the last like periods I was watching, I I can't remember specifically, but um, that, that would make sense to me because then you, what you could do if you really wanted to save Roman's reputation is just have him beat Cody for the the title. And then Roman can step away and do whatever he wants to do, take time off. And when he comes back, he could be like, Oh, I never lost the title, you know? And then he's back in the title picture with his title shot. It all makes sense in my head. And I know they're not going to do it. They're going to absolutely fumble the bag and literally just have Sammy team with Kevin for the tag titles at WrestleMania, which in, in a vacuum is nice. But now the other thing is with Jay Uso, he's out. So unless the, the storyline is going to be him coming back in, I, it makes no sense to me. Like, it, it, but the bigger picture is the big thought is 
if they if Sami Zayn has nothing to do with Roman Reigns at WrestleMania, that's such a miss because the crowd and fans are so invested for Sami Zayn. Yeah, that it's just I I I can't remember or I won't if they do this and they fumble the bag, I won't be able to remember a worse fumbling of like possible like um crowd fan investment or just fumbling of a, a, a an amazing opportunity for an amazing moment that since probably like the Montreal Screwdrop or something like that because i mean they they got the Daniel Bryan moment right and that moment was amazing yeah. this feels like a potential moment opportunity that they have with Sammy and Roman mm-hmm. that is maybe not exactly Daniel Bryan level but somewhere somewhere in the conversation yeah so let me give you my thoughts on the whole thing I think that the bloodline story the way it played out with Sammy finally just being fed up with Roman and turning on him hitting him in the back with the steel chair because he couldn't take watching Kevin Owens get beaten up while handcuffed to the ropes any longer. And he finally showed that where his true allegiance is. I think this story is phenomenal. The Jey Uso walking out on the beatdown and refusing to take part in, in beating down of Sami Zayn is incredible. I lost my mind when I watched that live. I think that's an incredible plot twist. And now, like you said... It, it it all turns to Elimination Chamber and how do you work the Bloodline storyline through that and get it to WrestleMania? With Cody sitting there as the challenger for the undisputed WWE Universal Heavyweight Championship, it, it does put yourself in a position where you now have to work in another story into what Roman Reigns is currently doing. And it almost begs the question, how do you get there? So, like you, you said, I, I think there are, are some ways to do it. I think that ultimately you're going to get Sami Zayn versus Roman Reigns for the world title, the, the undisputed title, at the Elimination Chamber pay-per-view. It's in Montreal. That is Sami Zayn's hometown. It's a, it's a just 10 out of 10, the easiest decision WWE could ever make in having him challenge for the title there. Obviously, the bloodline will get involved and make sure Roman does not lose it. The question will be, does Kevin Owens stand up for for Sami Zayn and, and get involved to try and help him out, which I assume he will. But the real question is Jey Uso. Where does he stand at the end of the night at uh, at Elimination Chamber, is he still standing by Sami Zayn's side, or is he back fully invested with the Bloodline? And if not, where does that leave the the tag titles? Because you have Jey Uso walking out, and that's beautiful for this story. But now you've left the tag team titles in in limbo. And I'm sure it'll get resolved, but because of the tag team title still being on the Usos, I it just I can't see any other way than Jay ultimately t- 
turning on Zayn uh, and and re and kind of just re re upping with the bloodline, so to speak. And you don't you, you don't think there's any way they could just have solo team without Jay? I guess they could do the 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 uh, the what's the rule where you can kind of have any. Isn't it like the bird rule or something? Yeah, the free bird yeah. rule where any two of oh a three-person group are can defend the tag team titles. They could do that. Uh, yeah. But the match that I honestly want to see at Elimination Chamber, and obviously they won't do it, but I would almost like to see a, a six-man tag with Roman, Solo, and Jimmy versus Kevin Owens, Sami Zayn, and Jay Uso. And That'd be dope. I know it probably it, it couldn't have the world title involved unless it was like winner take all. Shouldn't they want that though? <sighs> shouldn't they? I, I shouldn't they not want the title to be defended? You would think so because you've already announced Cody Rhodes, Roman Reigns as the main event of WrestleMania. So there's, it's like no point in in defending the title anymore to this point because you know that's unless you're adding. Sami Zayn to that main event there's there's going to be no change to it so I'm with you there it it would make more sense for them to not have the title defended but I think they just want to give Sami Zayn the crowning moment knowing that he probably isn't going to be involved in the world title match at Wrestlemania which like you said it just feels feels like they can't do that like the 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 backing, the fan base backing Sami Zayn is basically to a a Daniel Bryan fever pitch, if not even more so. So they've almost booked themselves into a corner where even if they give Sami Zayn the world title match at Elimination Chamber, and even if Roman Reigns soundly defeated him and cleanly, I just I don't enough. think you can just then let Sami have a a tag team title match with Kevin against the Usos at WrestleMania. The only way I could you could justify that is if it's the main event of night one. And then you have Roman Cody as the main event of night two. That's the only I way know. you can I, justify just, that. That feels like a cop-out. It, it does. Like it does. The fact that WrestleMania is two nights and you can just build two main events feels like a cop-out. It does. I don't like the fact that it's – I don't like the fact that WrestleMania is two nights, by the way. I understand you want to get everybody in on WrestleMania, but not everybody deserves to be at WrestleMania. Right. It's a business, okay? Yep. I, I feel like we're just appeasing, you know, you know, soft, soft complaining people. They're making millions or, or, or hundreds of thousand dollars, okay? They all don't deserve to be on the biggest show of the year. Who teams play for the championships in every other sport? Or two people? In a, like in, in boxing or like UFC, whatever, you, you don't have your entire roster compete. It, it's just it's oversaturation, man. It's always oversaturation with this yeah. company. But another chill out. But another thing to watch out for, and again, it's something that I don't think they can they'll pull the trigger on. But it's a thing I've seen speculated on the on the Twitter. The, the the internet wrestling fan fandom so to speak is what if they they split the titles what if I hate it that's another cop out yeah because here's the thing and now Jared and I talked this through too 
because he said they'll probably just split the titles because technically they alluded to doing that for the tag titles. Yeah. Um, so here's the thing. What is, it clearly feels like Roman Reigns is going to be taking time off after WrestleMania. He's not going to lose two title matches in two days. No. So it, There's no way they do that. Yeah. So if it feels like Cody is going to be the one to win at WrestleMania and get both belts. And then I don't know how you you do that, but I I I, I almost feel like the, the dream for me, and this is going to sound ridiculous, but the dream for me would be to add Sammy and Jay Uso to the main event of WrestleMania. Wow. And I know that Jay the, Jay Uso, why? The Jey Uso is just as big of part of this story as Sami Zayn. You think back to the Thunderdome? Well, clearly. You clearly, yeah, I, I get that, but in the title picture, dude? Yeah, but here's why. I So they once had a, a triple threat intercontinental title match where it, where it also involved the European title at the time. And it was basically first fall is for the Euro title, second fall is for the IC title. If you're going to cop out, at least have a cop out where you, you're putting all of the guys with the most storyline implications involved fighting for that world title and, and have like the first fall be for like the, the universal title, second fall be for the WWE title. Interesting. Okay. I mean, I don't love it, but I mean, it's, it's better yeah. than just not including Sammy at all. Yeah. Uh, Again, I think the the best version would be just trip, straight up triple threat for the undisputed title, and have either Sammy or Cody win. Personally, I would I would love for Sammy to win, but I don't. I think they're just going to give it to Cody. So mm-hmm. that is that. All right, we've got about thirty seconds left here, Nick. Any final thoughts before we sign off? No. Um... The long pod today, man. Yep. A lot of thoughts. Red Sox suck. That's, uh, you know, that's about all I got. Go bees. Gotcha. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this 100th edition of Fixin' to Talk Sports. For Nick, for my dad, and for every other guest I've ever had on the show, I'm Ryan Brown. We will see you next time. <laughs>